We'll open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 4 this morning. 2 Timothy chapter 4, as I mentioned today, is Father's Day. We're going to step away from Daniel and look at a passage in the New Testament in light of that. <clears throat> An exhortation, really, this morning for you men, but it applies to everyone here. I'm just aiming at, at you guys in particular and frankly, uh, Father's Day is likely not something that the world will acknowledge much longer because it's not convenient to their social reengineering program. You've probably heard some of the, what is it, Mother's Day, Birthing People Day, or some other such nonsense. But um, we will acknowledge fathers and mothers because the Bible does, God does. And that's all that really matters in the, in the end, regardless of whichever direction the, the wind blows in the world. And this past week, uh, in preparation, I ran across at one of my absolute favorite letters concerning Father's Day. It is about uh, a father passing by his son's bedroom, and the door was open, and when he went through, he was astonished to see that the bed was nicely made and everything that was picked up. Um, I'm sure that you wouldn't be astonished by your son's room like that. I mean, mine is, is son's perfect in, in every way, like this one, not. But as he walked by the room, he, he, he sees how nicely made it was, and then there's an envelope that's on the bed, propped up against the pillow with just one word on it that said, Dad. And so he opened it up to read, and here's what it said. Dear Dad, it is with great regret and sorrow that I'm writing to you, I wanted to let you know that I have eloped with my new girlfriend. Uh, I wanted to avoid a scene with mom and you because I know you wouldn't approve of all of her piercings and tattoos and motorcycle clothes, even though you wouldn't care for the fact that she is much older than I am. I want you to know that it's all good because she already owns a trailer in the woods and has a stack of firewood for the whole winter. She also tells me she wants to have more children than the four she already has, and we are praying that her trial goes well so she can keep them at home this time. Don't worry, Dad. Someday I'm sure we'll be back to visit so you can get to know your grandchildren, your son, Benjamin. P.S. Dad, none of the above is true. I'm over at the neighbor's house. I just wanted to remind you that there are worse things in life than my report card that is in my desk center drawer. I love you. Call me whenever it's safe to come home. Yeah. Now that is a shrewd kid. <laughs> but there's also something good blaring in the background. Um, Benjamin has a father that, that cares. Or he would not be worried about his response to his report card and... Hopefully, as parents, you never get a letter like that, but parenting clearly is full of surprises, and it gets more and more complicated uh, in, in, in our world. What I do hope is that your children and family will know that you are a faithful man, even down to a report card kind of, of level. On Mother's Day, I shared passage about Mary and Martha, about a Christian has many duties but one priority, and 
Jesus said that that would not be taken away from Mary because she had chosen the one necessary thing. And, and as I prepared for Father's Day, you know it is not natural for me to be away from uh, a consistent exposition. So I started thinking of, uh, in that light about what I would say, what I would choose to, to preach about on, on Father's Day. And I found myself contemplating as I considered, what is the, the most significant quality that a man could have or a father could have? I mean, if you stripped it all away, what is the one characteristic that a man of God should, should possess? I mean, what would God want him to be known for? What, what would his children or his friends say about him at the end of his life that would be praiseworthy, that would sum up a life that... that that would be worth living. And, and I think the answer is that, that he was a faithful man. He was faithful to God, faithful to his family, faithful to his vocation, and, and faithful to his church. And in all of those areas, those spheres of, of life, uh, Christ transforms your heart and you're a changed person, you're a new creation. But, but then as you read the book of Ephesians and Colossians, then, then that begins to ripple out in, into, into these spheres of, of, of life. In fact, success in life is faithfulness. The world will define it in many ways. But God's not called you to do anything less than be faithful, and He's not called you to do anything beyond that. All of this nonsense about being a world changer, having some big idea for God or some big dream that God blesses, that is just contrary to Scripture. In fact, you don't want to be known whenever you die. You want to be unknown. You want to be forgotten. You want Christ to be exalted. Well, how can that take place? Being faithful implies an unswerving allegiance or adherence to something that's not easily shaken. The word means a steadfast loyalty that, that isn't easily swayed. It doesn't move whenever pressure comes. A faithful man is someone who's true north in, in, in his compass of, of conviction is, is fixed, and the needle holds regardless of what comes. He he makes decisions based on core convictions that are, that are immovable. And then he governs his life by them. He also dies with them still intact. And I, I hope that, that you're a man like that. And if you're not today, you would, you would commit to be. It's the beautiful thing about God. Whatever you've done, as long as you're still breathing... Today and tomorrow is a new day. And I think really outside of the Lord himself, I can't think of any better role model of faithfulness than the Apostle Paul. Paul came to God late in life, and so he had many regrets before, before he pursued being faithful, a faithful man. But, but once he did, he, he never looked back. He, he never looked back and he never backed down. He was a man who didn't waste another second of, of his life and... And he encouraged you and I to, to, be the, to be the same. In fact, toward the end of Paul's life, he describes this commitment to faithfulness that, that he made long ago. And, and as he comes to the end of it, which is what we have here in 2 Timothy chapter 4, kind of the epitaph of his, of his tombstone, he, he comes to the end of his life and he looks back over it and and then, on that basis, he encourages Timothy to be faithful with his. Timothy, 
you have more life to live. And, and so this is how you should, you should live it. And that's the charge that's found in 2 Timothy chapter 4, beginning in verse 1 through verse, verse 8. It's a passage normally preached to preachers. We're only going to focus on verses 6 through 8 because I think it's extremely helpful for our topic this morning. But let's read 1 Timothy, or 2 Timothy 4, I should say, verse 1, starting there. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing in His kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires, and will turn away their ears from the truth, and will turn aside the myths. But you, in contrast, but you, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry." And here's Paul looking at himself. For I am ready, already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith. In the future is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, here's how it applies to all of us, but also to all who have loved His appearing. This section is a call to faithfulness. And I want to focus on the last three verses because it's here that Paul writes like a wise, battle-hardened general with thousands of combat hours speaking to a lance corporal in the midst of his first deployment. I mean, Paul here is like a gray-haired Olympian with several gold medals speaking to the Olympic team before their first upcoming winter games. And as he looks back, he provides instruction. And then he looks ahead. He looks back and, and then he looks ahead. I mean, and, and when I started thinking about that, Paul's looking back here, but, but, but I started considering the places where the Bible places limitations on looking back. And in fact, it says we're to forget those things which are behind. So there's a certain looking back that you, you shouldn't do. We're not to look back and become morbidly focused on our sin or past if that will trip you up for future service. We're, we're to count all of our earthly accomplishments in the past outside of Christ as rubbish. We're, we're not to ask, or I should say we are to ask God not to remember the, the sins of our youth. But here, God instructs us to look back with Paul at, at life. So here's Paul coming to the end and he's looking back over life and and he's giving instruction to Timothy, and he's saying, Timothy, as your life is in front of you, here is how you should view your life. Here are four distinct lenses. If you want to be faithful, if you want to end where I'm ending, a praiseworthy place, a place that will receive the praise of God whenever you, you, you die, this is how you should look at life now and then live this way. And any. He gives four lenses through which you, you, you view your, your existence. Four ways to think about your days on earth so that you can make the most of them for Christ. We'll, we'll call them four lenses for life that help you, you live in a, in a faithful way. What is life? 
How do you know what it is? How do you know whether you're faithful? Oh, yeah, I want to be faithful. How do you know whether you're faithful? How should you, how should you look at it? Well, Paul says that if you want to be faithful, you must see life as, as an offering to, to pour out. You must see it as a fight that you're engaged in and you're fighting to win. And You must see life as a course to finish. There's a beginning and an end and there, there's, the course is already marked out. And then you must see it as a faith to to keep. And if we live that way, Paul says in the end, we'll have much to look forward to. We'll, we'll not only have the blessings that a life like that brings here, but, but we'll have a heavenly reward from Christ himself. That's what he talks about in verse 8. Look at verse 8. It says, in the future, he's looking back over his life. It's how I live. Timothy, this is how you should live. Because this is what awaits you or, or anybody in the future is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. There's a prize that, that awaits a faithful life. There's the praise that comes from the judge who will award me in that day. In the future is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And then it's a partnership. It's with all those who love His appearing. This is a call for all Christians, not just men, even though I'm aiming it at you this morning. Because heaven... It's the place where deeds that are done on the earth are rewarded with, with God's praise. You, you see, you're all living for something. Right now, we are living for something or someone. It's what motivated you to get out of bed this morning. It what, it's what drives every second of your life, whether you're, whether you're aware of it or not. Living for something, though, is not the problem. It's the object of your affection. The object that you're living for is the issue. What are you living for? Have you asked that question of your life lately, men? Have you tested that by, by your life? The, the answer that you give, what, what, what do you love? What would you give up something to, to gain? I mean, where do you spend your time, your, your energy? Here's a really probing question. What would you disobey God to get? Whatever you answer, it's probably what you're living for. Any object other than God is a waste of your, your life. Because the Bible says that your life, this is not just as a believer, but for everyone, you were created by a creator for a specific purpose, and the way in which you should look at your life is it is an offering to pour out over your entire existence. That's what Paul says here in verse 6, and he says... It's something you do voluntarily, it's something that you do continually, and it's something that you do completely. If you go to verse 6, he says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has, has, has come. Life, Paul says, is like a cup of wine or oil that has a certain amount of liquid in it, and it is slowly and deliberately poured out over the course of, of your life. And one of the reasons that we, we use this passage in, in funerals is because Paul is coming toward the end of his life, and he's looking back over it. But, but he's giving this to Timothy, who has plenty of life to live. And he says, Timothy, look at your life this way. Look at it like an offering. Look at it like a cup that that has, has wine or oil in it, and then you're then slowly and deliberately pouring out this, this offering over the course of your, your life. 
You don't just dump it on the altar at, at one time and then that's it. You, you get up every day and, and you pour out your life as, as an offering. And, and Paul senses that there's not much left in the bottom of his cup. He's pouring and he can see the bottom. Like you, he doesn't know the exact day of his death, but he knows life doesn't last forever. Paul's probably around 60 years of age uh, whenever he wrote this. And he's within a year of his death. How many of you in here are over 60 years of age? I have nine years and I'll be there. Paul was born in the city of Tarsus around 6 AD and he probably died sometime around 67 AD. And that's whenever he's writing this letter around 67. And he seems to sense it. He says, the time of my departure is at hand. He doesn't know the exact day, but... But he can sense it's, it's, it's coming to the end. This is very different than like whenever he was, was in the storm and he's uh, going to be shipwrecked and everybody is losing their minds. We're going to lose our life. And the, and the Lord says, Paul, no, that's not what's going to happen. You're going to Rome. You'll be a witness and, and more is going to take place. But here Paul's not saying that. He's saying it's, it's coming. I'm, I'm arriving at the end. And he uses an Old Testament reference to the offerings given to the Lord as a as a sacrifice related to his life. And in the sacrificial system given in the Old Testament, which was an example for us that God gave Israel, there were many offerings, and some were mandatory and some were voluntary. Some you had to participate in because you were a, you were a Jew of, of the covenant. And then there were others that you could voluntarily give. It wasn't required, and that's the one that Paul uses here. There was a burnt offering to express worship and commitment to God and was also an atonement for unintentional sin. There was a peace offering that was a sacrifice to give thanks to the Lord and a fellowship that followed by a shared meal and there were grain and drink offerings. It was to express thanksgiving for God's provision and His unmerited grace toward the person making the sacrifice. And in, and in both the Jewish and the pagan system, a, per, a person who is performing a sacrifice... You may remember this from the book of Philippians. They would, the animal would be killed and then they would place it on the, on the burning altar. And, and then beyond that, there was this secondary offering that was drink offering that would be added to, to the main one. So they, they would place the, the burnt sacrifice there on the altar. And if the worshiper wanted to an ex, express an even greater worship or greater honor, then they would pour that cup or wine on top of the the burnt offering, that was the drink offering, and, and then it would, it would flame up. It didn't replace the main one, but it was poured over top of the meat to complement it. And it was voluntary. And the purpose of the drink offering was to commend or to make more glorious the, the, the primary one. And Paul says if you want to remain faithful in life, you need to, you need to think of it like that. A, a voluntary offering that that comes to an end and, and you live to make God look more glorious and others accomplish more good. It's the same reference that Paul uses five years ago when he's writing to the Philippians in around 61 A.D. So this is not something that Paul's just thinking about death and so he's thinking, oh yeah, my life is just like an offering and it's almost over. I mean, this is the way that Paul's been looking at life for a long time. Philippians 2.17, But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. So 
Paul there pictures the Philippian church as an animal strapped to the altar, and Paul says his labor is like a drink offering poured out on top. He's giving thanks for them. He lives to, to make much of their faithful lives that were being consumed for Christ. And then Paul comes along and adds his life to it. And together they were offered to God. One writer said Paul sees life, his life, your life, man, like, like the museum light placed on the Mona Lisa. It's not the painting, it's, it's something that highlights it. It's not to draw attention to the light, but to draw attention to, to, their, to their sacrifice, the Philippians' sacrifice. Paul called that a poured out life, a, an offering. And men, you'll not live a full life unless you pour yours out for others for your wife, for your family, for your church, for your employer. This morning, would, would, would you be able to say, in, in my life, I'm a drink offering. I'm second place. <laughs> would your children say that? Would your boss say that? Uh, this is a man who voluntarily jumps at a chance to make others successful. Or are you first in line in, in your home? Paul also said our lives are to be continually lived that way. Look at verse 6 again. For I am already being poured out. It's something that, that he's been doing. And Paul had given his life as a voluntary sacrifice long ago, his whole life. You probably remember the words in Romans 12, 1. If you memorized it in... In the King James, like I did, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Your whole life, whenever you come to Christ, because of the mercies that God has given you, you are, you're alive and, and your, your whole person is an offering uh, to, to God. And Paul says he's already being poured out o- over time, not just to God, but, but for others. He said it was done as a thanksgiving Offering for unmerited grace. And now he's at the end and he's ready to be poured out into the sacrificial fire the rest of his life. That's what you did after you poured it over the, over the main offering. Whatever's left in the cup, you put it in the fire. You didn't waste a single drop of his life. Paul knows his death is imminent. So even in his death, he wants to be an offering to the Lord. Questions that these few words demand that we, we ask of ourselves. Have you ever given your life as a voluntary sacrifice to begin with? And if you have, are you, uh, are you a living sacrifice uh, already there, being poured out continually? Or were you on the altar at one point and then jumped off whenever the fire got hot? Would you live differently if you knew the time of your departure was at hand? If you knew that you were going to die soon, like, like Paul, would, would you live differently now? Would, would you look at it as a final drink offering poured upon the fire? If you would live different, if you knew that you were going to die, then, then the change you need to make is, is right now because you're not promised an, another day. Paul said, I live for the benefit of others. I I exist to help little ones grow in in Jesus, to present my wife to Christ as a blameless woman. I I live to disciple. I live to share the gospel, not for reasons that will perish like dry grass around a burn pile. He said, if you want to be faithful, look at your life as an offering. 
But he also says, look at it as a fight to win. If you want to be faithful, you also have to look at life as a, as a fight to win. Look, if you would, at verse 7. Just, he shifts metaphors here. I have fought the good fight, the drink offering, and now he's talking about, about a battle. Paul now looks back and he says, I have fought. It's, a, it's an intensive perfect verb. In fact, the next three are. I have fought, I have finished, I have kept. It's... It, it's it's something that was started or accomplished in the past, but it has ongoing results. He's still doing it. And, and that's exactly what he's calling Timothy to do back in verse 5. Look at verse 5 again. You remember I pointed out the contrast here. There'll be some who will accumulate teachers according to their own desires. They'll turn away. But you, Timothy, be sober in all things, endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist, and here it is, fulfill your ministry. Do what God has called you, enabled you, and enabled you to do. And as you do, remember, it's a battlefield, not a playground. I don't know how you think about life, or what you think about whenever you, you, you hear of a fight, but most people don't like them, and, and, and rightly so, I think. I mean, they're hard, and people usually get hurt, but... But Paul here says that you have to, if you want to be faithful, you have to look at life as a battle. But he says this one's a good fight. It's not against others, but it's for your soul. He, he uses the word good. It almost seems like they contradict a good fight. Excellent. Uh, in itself without any qualification. John MacArthur said it's beautiful, it's profitable, it's excellent, it's delightful. It's a distinguished fight. It's, it's the most noble of all fights. It's, it's a fight for the honor of Jesus Christ, for the glory of the gospel, and for the integrity of, of the Word of God. It's a good fight. And I understand people will fight over anything. I just saw this past week where, I think it was this last week, who knows, the world's crazy, where some woman just cold-cocked a fast food worker uh, for refusing to, to mix two different kinds of, uh, of sodas together in the soda fountain, in McDonald's. And Paul says Christ is something worth fighting for. And he says it's hard, it's a hard fight. The word that he uses here for fight is agonizomai. It's related to agonize. It's it means exerting the great effort, the, exerting the energy that, that's needed to win. Now think about how that will, will help you to be faithful. Because if you think that life is here to serve you or it's going to be easy or, or, or hard things are not going to come, then you're going to get waylaid. But if you see life as a fight, but it's one that's worth living, worth agonizing over, worth striving to complete, then, then it's going to lead to faithfulness. It's the same word used in 1 Timothy 6.12, fight the good fight of faith. Paul uses the exact same phrase in 1 Timothy. It's the same word that Jesus uses when He calls men to salvation in Luke 13.24. Strive, it's used, English word strive to, to enter the, the narrow gate or the, the narrow way. It, it, it has the idea this is hard. And God says if you want to be faithful, you must see life as a spiritual struggle. And you're in one, whether you're a Christian or, or, or not. And there are things that wage war against your soul, your own desires, the, the world around you, the devil, 
He promises you pleasure. And these are all your opponents, and, and, and none of them have good intentions. Your lusts want to be served now, regardless of the consequences. The world wants you to follow its broad road or be trampled by its fellow travelers, and the devil wants to steal and kill and, and destroy you. The point is, there is no neutrality in life. And you can't choose to sit at the ringside or not pick a side. That, that is a side. And you're going to get pummeled if, if you don't get your guard up. And some of you already have. You know exactly what I'm talking about. And Paul says that he looks back over his life. He said, I fought. And it was a worthy fight. It was a good fight. So men, let me ask you, are you in the fight? I think this is probably one that really can hit home. Because men have a tendency to compartmentalize or, or to, to, to disconnect. And you cannot do that and be faithful. Do you see that this is the only good thing to fight for? I mean, it's easy to get exercised about stuff. And there are way more important things than whether somebody mixes your soft drink correctly or I mean, things that may even seem important in life. Are you focused on unimportant things outside of the ring rather than what's going on inside of it? Paul says he recognized he was in a fight and he engaged the opponent both offensively and defensively. And he realized it was a good endeavor to, to engage in. Living a life like that for God is good without any qualifications, regardless of what you get from, from this life. It, it means it would be good if you didn't receive a single blessing in return. That's why success is faithfulness. I mean, who will be exalted in heaven? Jesus alone. Who will receive the, the greatest rewards? It, it's probably not going to be the guys that, that you see heralded by the world. The ones with the ginormous ministries that have really white teeth and shiny shoes and sound really great in what they say. It's probably going to be the faithful man who died at 75 of cancer who was pastoring a church for 43 years that never grew more than that 75 people in the backwoods of North Carolina that never compromised the gospel one time. That's who's going to be exalted. That's success. A faithful man. And Paul is quite frankly perplexed that, that so many who named Christ were more enamored with earthly things that were nothing but rubbish. And so he also reminds Timothy that life is not only a fight to win, it's a good fight. But he says it's a course to finish. And there's a set path and there's a final goal whenever you think about a course. He shifts metaphors again. He says, I fought the good fight in verse 7. He says, I finished the course. And there's a set path whenever you think about a course and then there is a final goal. I mean, he talks about the time of his departure. That's when he's going to finish, right? And if you want to be faithful, you must look at life like a course, fellas. And a course has a predetermined path and it has a clear end. That's the word that's actually used here. 
for course, a dramas. It's a, used for a race course. It was used for a military career that has a beginning and an end. You give me 20 years and then you get your military pension or whatever was happening in Paul's day. Paul uses it to mean a person's calling or their God-given course. I, I have finished the course, the course that the Lord has given for me. And it's something that was marked out with boundaries. Now, I am not a runner. Um, I've done a little bit of it. I, I think the farthest I've ever run is about 10 miles, give or take a couple some of you in here have tripled that, and some of you are just crazy and do like these 50-mile, 100-mile things like Jordan and Govinda. Some of you have never run farther than the bathroom. <laughs> but I do know, even though I don't run, a race is something that you train for, and it's, it's something that that you compete according to, to the rules. I mean, you can't just take off in the race course and look at it and say, ah, oh, wow, that looks like a, a, a really big curve right there. I'm just going to cut that off and I'm going to do this. And all of a sudden you show up at the end and say, hey, I won. I finished. They're going to say, no, we GPS tracked you the whole way. Paul's point is that you have to see life as a, as a track with a finish line. And the course means you don't get to... Uh, to determine where you run. The course master does. And, and God, as our creator, has marked out life. I mean, this is the beginning and this is the end and this is what is good and this is what is not and this is what's faithful and this is what is unfaithful. And this is what you do whenever you are unfaithful. You repent and, and you confess. God makes the rules and He marks the race course. And then a finish line means that, that that's what you're running for. I mean, I know some people enjoy... Running, and there's some joy that comes from it, but, but the Bible says run for a prize. The race will end whenever you get to the finish line and not a second sooner. So it also says don't grow weary in well-doing. You, you will reap if you don't faint. And in the Christian life, God has marked out the the path that you run, and he's marked out the specific, your specific course. As men, you have their specifics that are there, that, that you have to be, that you have to do. It's not a choice. But there's also an alternative course that you can run that ends in emptiness. You know, I teach church history, and I'm fascinated by how the Lord uses individuals' lives. And, and I, I like church history too because you can see the beginning and the end of someone's life. You, you, can, you can see the fruit that comes from, from whatever they, they followed. You, you can see them falter and fail and get up and, and, and be used again. But it's one of the dangers of following somebody that's young, that's not tested or proven. You don't know which, which way they're going to go. But I think one of the sermons that at least in our lifetime, that, that was significant, was preached about 20 years ago by John Piper. It's his famous sermon that, about this reality of an alternative course. He preached it to 40,000 college students. And the title of his sermon was Boasting Only in the Cross. And it was from Galatians 6.14. May it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I 
to the world. If you've heard it, many called it the seashell sermon. It's the basis of many of his books, uh, pleading for the same thing, don't waste your life. Here's an excerpt from it. You don't have to know a lot of things for your life to make a lasting difference in the world. But you do have to know a few great things that matter and be willing to live for them and die for them. The people that make a durable difference in the world are not the people who have mastered many things, but but who have been mastered by a few great things. If you want your life to count, if you want the ripple effect of the pebbles that you drop to become waves that reach the ends of the earth and roll on for centuries and into eternity, you don't have to have a high IQ or EQ. You don't have to to have good looks or or riches. You don't have to come from a fine family or a fine school. You, You have to know a few great, majestic, unchanging, glorious things and be set on fire by them. But I know that not everybody in this crowd wants your life to make a difference. There are hundreds of you, and you don't care whether you make a lasting difference for something great. You just want people to like you. Or if you could just have a good job with a good wife and a couple of good kids and a nice car and long weekends and a few good friends and a fun retirement and a quick and easy death and no hell. If you could have that, minus God, you would be satisfied. And that is a tragedy in the making. Three weeks ago, we got word at our church that Ruby Eliason and Laura Edwards had both been killed in Cameroon. Ruby was over 80, single all of her life. She poured it out for one great thing, to make Jesus Christ known among the unreached, the poor, and the sick. Laura was a widow, a medical doctor, pushing 80 years old and serving at Ruby's side in Cameroon. The brakes failed, the car went over the cliff, and they were both killed instantly. Then I asked my people, was that a tragedy? Two lives driven by one great vision, spent in unheralded service to the perishing poor for the glory of Jesus Christ, two decades after almost all their American counterparts had retired to throw their lives away on trifles in Florida or New Mexico. No, that's not a tragedy. That is glory. I'll tell you what tragedy is. I'll read to you from Reader's Digest, February 2000, page 98. This is a tragedy. Quote, Bob and Penny took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. Now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler, play softball, and collect shells. The American dream, come to the end of your life, your one and only life, and let the last great work before you give an account to your Creator be, I collect shells. You offer up to God your shell collection. That is a tragedy, and today people are spending billions of dollars to persuade you to embrace that tragic dream, and I get 40 minutes to plead with you, don't buy it. Don't waste your life. It is short and precious.
That's the alternative to living the way that Paul says here. And Christians can start the race, but if we forget that we are running a course and that there's an end that we're running for, we can get diverted. We can bow the knee and say, all of me for all of you. I receive you as Savior and Lord. And, and I understand it's an end of me and your word is now my authority. And then you start walking the Christian life and, and you want it your own way. And then you wonder why something's missing. If you're a Christian, you're a bond slave. You have no rights. And you don't want any anyway. I mean, you can have rights and go to hell. Or you can follow Christ and be freed from your rights. And the finish line of this race is the goal, and the race ends no sooner. Run to the end, dear Christian, and run for the prize. That's what Paul is saying to, to Timothy. And I don't care if you're doing 18-minute miles when you cross the finish line, or if you crawl across it, get there. And thinking of life that way will help you to be faithful. Because it's also a faith to, to keep. One final metaphor that he gives here. I fought the good fight in verse 7. I finished the course. I have kept the faith. And notice what Paul says here. I have kept and then the faith. Two keys to that statement in just these few words. It almost sounds like a promise what he makes here. I, I have kept what was given to me. It was given to me and I've kept it. I was faithful to that. Timothy, you do the same thing. It sounds that way because that's what it is. He, Paul was entrusted a treasure, treasure of the gospel, which was the faith. The word kept means he watched over it. He, he heeded it. He persevered in it. Jude uses the same word, talking about you as a believer, saying those who are called, beloved in God the Father are kept for Jesus Christ, the, the same word. And Paul says, the faith that was, is what he kept. It's the truth of God. It was something committed to his care and, and to all the saints. Jude said it's the faith once delivered unto the saints. And Paul says that he kept that faith. It just simply means he remained in truth. Paul says, that's how you should look at life. It's the faith. And you remain in it. It doesn't get old or passe or become no longer helpful. You know my pet peeve? Is when people say that, in particular preachers, that they make the Bible relevant with their sermons. Oh, it just makes my blood boil even saying that. You don't make the Bible anything. It is relevant. It is the faith. It's the very word of the living God. Why do you care about my words or my opinion? <laughs> but you should care greatly about what God says. And oh, how important it is to look at life as, as keeping, as holding to the faith, the very words of, of God in our day and time, especially when our cultural boundaries just, just heave and, and, and throw and they change with the, with the seasons only to, to change tomorrow. Paul says only God has the answers to life. And you need to know what those are. And then you need to keep them and you need to hold them. And that's what a faithful life looks like. Because His way never changes. See, we often ask the wrong question. How will it make me feel? Or does it work? And Paul says that we need to be asking men, is it true? 
is it right? And if it's not right, then I will not do it. The faith, faith that God has decided, He says we keep. And Ephesians 4.3 says we keep that faith by being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. In 1 Timothy 5.22, he says we keep the, the faith by keeping ourselves free from sin. We keep the faith by guarding the truth in 1 Timothy 6.20. And we also preserve the faith by passing it on. Paul took the faith that God had declared as the sole authority and he passed it on to others who will teach future generations. And that's what you must do. As a Christian, your life should be marked by the very same things. You, you want a life that keeps what God says. To say it simply, you, you want to be a disciple, a person who's marked in subjection to God's Word, and you want to be a discipler, a person who's regularly passing on God's truth to others. Are you doing that? Men, is your life in subjection? Is your life in subjection to God in, in every area? Is it in subjection to your boss at work? Is it in subjection to, to church, to, to whatever authority is there? And, and as, you, as you look at your life, then do you have others that you're, you're, you're pouring into? Not your way, but God's way. Are there others that you're bringing along either in salvation or a younger person in, in, in the faith? Or are you someone who's self-oriented? I can think of many men that did this for me, but my mind, frankly, went back to a, a lady that did this for Tracy whenever we were first saved at Red House. She epitomized the role of passing it on. Her name was Ann Pitchford. She was a lady in our church. She was very unassuming, and she was in the background, and she passed on many things to, to younger ladies. And Tracy saw that, and she stayed as close to her as possible in the beginning. She, she taught her how to make apple butter and quilts and candy and do all kinds of other things. And as you listen to that list, you say, that doesn't sound like the Bible, but it, but it was. Because as she was doing those things, she was living out, being a faithful wife and in submission and chaste and reverent behavior of Titus 2. And you don't have to quote the Bible every time to pass on a faithful life. But she did that as well. And while they canned and quilted, they talked about God and parenting and many other things. She's in heaven now. But I've watched many pass on those lessons that they learned from her, whoever was smart enough to, to listen. Are you an Ann Pitchard or men? Are you an Andy Pitchford? <laughs> Do you pass it on? I, I mean, if you decided to skip church for two weeks, would anyone notice? And you say, I have, and no one cared. You need to turn that around. The problem is not the church who didn't miss you. It was that your life was so weightless that they didn't even know you were gone. If you're missed, maybe you should should ask why and, and start looking at your own life instead of, instead of others. I mean, I've seen people just forsake the body for weeks and then get offended that nobody reached out to them. Well, well how about the fact that you didn't care and left to begin with? You know, one of the quickest ways to identify a self-centered person is, is somebody who's in isolation or easily offended or, or grumbling. And if you're not in connection with others... 
then you're not being able to do what Paul says here. Well, Paul ends this passage with the, the promise that waits all of us at the finish line. It's the motivation to do any of this. Look at verse 8. He says, in the future, so when you come to the end of the course, after the cup is fully drained and you pour it into the fire, after, after you, the, the final bell sounds and, and the, the good fight is over, after you finish the race course, after you've, you've kept the treasure in the future, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but also those who have loved His appearing and he talks about the prize, a crown of righteousness. It's just the reward that you get. Crown of rightness. And think of the fact that you will be praised by Christ Himself. <laughs> and then there's the participation to all who love His appearing and those who pour out their lives as an offering, men or women or whoever, those who fight the fight, run the course, keep the faith, have much to look forward to. Heaven is a place where the deeds done here for Jesus are rewarded with Christ's praise and we'll worship Him for all eternity with the rewards that we receive from our lives. Men, I cannot promise you that if you live this kind of life, a faithful life, that, that anyone will, will know you, that you'll have earthly blessing of, of wealth or, or health or prosperity. In fact, you may receive the opposite you may not have what others dream of. But I can promise you this, based on the authority of God's Word Himself, that when you get to heaven, you'll have more than a shell collection to offer Christ. And you'll never regret one second living for Him. And you'll hear... You'll be in the full pleasure of the Master, and you will know you're pleasing to Him... And there is no greater blessing on earth. It's a faithful life. But you have to view it this way as you live it. Don't you bow your heads? In a sermon like this, I found my own heart saying, Oh, more, Lord, more. Change this, tweak that. As I said, that's the beauty of Christ. Here's where you need to hear the admonition that not to look back and get so morbidly focused on things that you can't change. A Christian is not someone who doesn't sin. A Christian is someone who's actually honest about their sin. And so if you listen to something like this and you say, wow, I, I need to look at things differently, then what the Bible would say is, praise God, start today. Put the cup in your hand and start pouring. Put the gloves on. Get back on the course. Learn the treasure of the faith and keep it. And God will use you whatever days you have left. Father, thank you for this word that's been challenging to our souls. I pray for every man here this morning that we would live this kind of life. View it in this way inoculate us, keep us from the lies of the world. And I pray for, for every woman here this morning. It applies to them as well. Thank you, Father, for faithful examples like Paul. May we be this way for others and bring you much glory in Jesus' name.
Amen.